everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. Today, as many of you know, we're continuing a series we've called In the End, and it's based on many conversations that I've had over the years with friends whose time on this earth was coming to an end. And during these conversations, I've noticed something, and namely that the questions that we tend to ask when we're first starting out in our faith, uh, questions about life and pain and God and religion and prayer and even what happens when we die, those questions tend to resurface when someone faces the end of their life. And when they resurface, they carry an urgency that, to be honest, they just didn't have when it felt like life was just going to go on forever. I said a bit differently, there are questions that really matter in the end. And, and for six weeks, as sort of winter turns into spring, hopefully winter turns into spring, we're exploring them one at a time as a way to sort of prepare us all for the day when they become the most important questions of all. And so uh, that said, this week I want to uh, explore another fascinating question that always seems to come up when a person of faith gets sick in a way that threatens to bring about the end of their life. And the question goes like this. Does prayer really work? And, and uh, what they mean when they ask that question is, okay, if I need supernatural physical healing and I ask God for it, will he answer by giving me what I need? And obviously that is a great question. And if we're honest, people of faith have long acknowledged that there is a lot of mystery surrounding prayer, both what it is and how it works. And uh, as a pastor, I've thought a lot about this over the years, and I'm actually convinced that much of our confusion about prayer stems from the way that we're first introduced to it uh, when either we're growing up in faith or we come to faith later in life. Because without realizing it, we're sort of handed a set of assumptions about prayer that often have trouble surviving our life experiences. I was reflecting this week on my own journey, and I remember well how I was first introduced to prayer. Uh, like every night before we ate dinner, my family would sit at our kitchen table, and uh, we'd recite a prayer, the same prayer every night to bless the food. And the prayer that we would recite, it's pretty special, uh, could have been written by Dr. Zeus. And I bet some of you know of this prayer. It goes like this. <clears throat> God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Right. And no offense to my parents, but this is not a great prayer. Okay. For a number of reasons, beginning with the fact that it doesn't even rhyme. Food does not rhyme with good, at least in this version of the multiverse. Just saying, right? Uh, and then there was the prayer that I was taught to pray right before I went to bed each night. Um, and it was both strange and even a bit terrifying. You may have heard this prayer. Some of you already know. That's so good. All right. You're like, yeah. All right. This one. Now I lay me down to sleep. I was seven years old, okay, when we started with this. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And then my parents would kiss me on the forehead and say, good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite, right? And then they would like turn off the lights, leaving me to ponder whether God would take my soul if I died in my sleep and leaving me to jump when something stirred under the covers that I thought had to be bed bugs, okay? But no worries. After a few decades, my counselor says I'm doing better. So it's good, right? Yeah. Well, well as I got older, um, my relationship to prayer began to change a bit. And I began 
to pray when I needed something uh, or even wanted something from God, especially after I sat through a sermon one weekend in which I learned that around 2,000 years ago, Jesus had actually looked at his disciples and said, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And I remember where I was sitting, like in a pew when I heard this. And I remember thinking two things at the same time. The first was, man, that's awesome. And the second that followed right on the heels of the first was, wait a minute, there must be more to this than initially meets the eye because of the stunningly limited success that I have had while asking God for things that I really wanted, like hypothetically, maybe just once a date for homecoming. Okay, I'm just saying, right? Yeah. So whatever Jesus means here, there must be a little nuance to it. Um, And and then uh, there was my experience with prayer in college. Um, I met a couple of Pentecostal guys while moving in to my freshman dorm, and they invited me to join them for something that they called a prayer meeting the following Friday night. So if you ask me, what do Pentecostals do on Friday night? In my experience, they have prayer meetings. There you go, right? Uh, And this particular prayer meeting took place in the basement of our dorm in a really sketchy room with air ducts running across the ceiling to which, in order to fend off potential litigation, bright yellow stickers had been attached that read, Caution, Asbestos. Okay. And I remember, I was 18, I remember walking in that room and thinking, okay, one, is this safe? And two, out of all the places on planet Earth that one would choose to pray in, why would you do it by asbestos, right? Um, Anyway, that night in that room, we prayed for like almost two hours. And I had never experienced anything like that. And and as I observed, what was happening is we as a group were repeatedly asking God to move in the lives of the students on campus. And during that rather extended petition, my overly analytical adolescent mind couldn't help but wonder if this whole exercise was a little strange. Because as I thought about it, we were spending a lot of time and energy attempting to persuade God to do something that as far as I understood, he already wanted to do. (laughs) And so being me, I sought out the pastor that sort of led this whole organization and shared my observation with him the following week. Um, And I said, maybe what we should do the next Friday is to go out on campus and actually talk to some people about Jesus instead of spending our entire evening in a dark, scary basement with asbestos in it praying for them, right? And in response, he told me, and this is one of the pivotal moments of my faith, that I thought way too much about things and I should just trust the process. That's what he said, right? And uh, yeah, So I was a bit confused as to prayer leaving college, but then in the years since, um, I've had more than a few opportunities to pray with people who are seriously ill in order to ask God to heal them. And I've experienced some, well, some different outcomes from those prayers. And, And so I remember a time years ago when I went to pray with a couple whose baby had been born prematurely, uh, downtown, Spectrum Health, when I met the baby, he was in the NICU, and he really wasn't doing well. And uh, his doctors had given his parents a really grim prognosis. And so, you know, they confessed this to me, but they said, well, we reached out kind of as a last resort. Like, we wonder if, if maybe, maybe God could help. And, and so I drove downtown and got on the 17 elevators to get me to the room, and we gathered around the the container that contained this baby, right? And, uh, and we asked God for healing. And as I remember, we held hands and, and we believed and we trusted and we hoped that God would heal him. 
but, but, but in the end, for whatever reason, God chose not to, and, and, and the baby passed. But, but then a few months later, I met with another family who had reached out and asked for prayer, and, and they called to let me know that their four-year-old son had been diagnosed with an aggressive stage four cancer, and that the doctors weren't sure what to do with him. And, and so a whole bunch of us uh, met in the basement of a local church. I remember walking in going, really? We're praying in a basement again, but okay, you know. And uh, we gathered in order to petition God for healing, and, and we held hands, and we believed and we hoped, and we trusted that God could heal him. And, and then about a week later, during a checkup, the doctors reported a truly miraculous turnaround. One of the nurses literally said there was no medical explanation for what happened. And as a fun PS to that story, like as I was working on this talk, I saw on Facebook that this young guy has just turned 13, and he's healthy, and he's cancer-free, which is awesome, right? But, but honestly, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Like, does prayer work? And does God answer prayers? And, or, or does God answer some prayers, but, but not all prayers? Or, or maybe he answers, he always answers prayers, but sometimes he just says no. And then I have other friends, because I, I talk about this because I have a lot of fun to be with, apparently. But yeah, I, I, it's friends, and we talk about this, and they say things like, well, you know, isn't God just going to do what God's going to do? And if God's just going to do what God's going to do, then why would we bother to pray at all? And, and I remember as I was, you know, kind of going through this whole exercise, you know, coming up with the stuff for this morning, I remember thinking, is it any wonder that we wonder if prayer really works? Well, with the rest of our time together today, what I want to do is argue that there is a different and far better way to think about prayer. A different set of assumptions that I think can be incredibly helpful as we try to understand how, and maybe you're wondering even if, prayer works. And, and I actually think that we can identify these different assumptions by exploring how Jesus prayed on the last night of his life. So let me briefly give you a bit of context that surrounded his prayer because the context, I think, helps us understand what happened when he prayed. So um, the setting is immediately following the last supper that Jesus has with his disciples. And, and right after the meal, uh, Jesus leads his first disciples outside of the city of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, which runs just to the east of the ancient city, and then immediately up the Mount of Olives partway to a garden that contained an olive press and more than a few olive trees. See, in the garden in ancient times, they made olive oil by crushing the olives in an olive press. As the place has become known as the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a picture that was taken when we were there back in October. Um, and it's a place that we visit every time we go to Israel. It's an amazing place to talk about a whole lot of, a lot of different things. But, but the word Gethsemane is interesting. In Hebrew, Gethsemane means olive press. And, and so metaphorically speaking, this was the perfect place for Jesus to be on his last night on earth because it was in this place that Jesus was emotionally pressed and crushed by the reality of what he would soon experience. It's no exaggeration to say that night everything was about to change for Jesus. And one of his first followers, a man named Matthew, preserved a record of what happened that night. Here's what, he, here's what he wrote. He tells us, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, 
and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. So Peter, James, and John go along with Jesus. And as they walk, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And, and then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then he says, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. Now I'm telling you, as we keep reading, you'll soon see that for Jesus, this was a filter-free prayer moment. Have you ever had one of those, right? When in your communication with God, you were more honest than polite and you sort of dropped the formalities and all of the King James English burned away and you got painfully real and told God what you really thought about what was happening to you and maybe even what you thought about him. I mean, we have to remember, like this night, Jesus knew what was coming. It was moments before he would be experiencing what was unquestionably the most challenging stretch of his life. He would soon be betrayed by one of his first followers, falsely accused, tried, convicted, and executed. And so that night in the garden, with the weight of the world's sins about to rest on his shoulders, Jesus prayed a brutally honest prayer. He said, my father, speaking to God, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. In other words, Jesus confessed to his heavenly father that every fiber in his physical body resisted the path that was set before him that he was going to have to walk and he was crying out for another option, any other option. Confronted with the horror of what he would soon have to endure, he likened it to a cup from which he didn't want to drink. Jesus made a brutally honest, real, raw request to God. He didn't want to do what he knew he had to do. Which brings me to a, a really powerful observation. Namely, to Jesus, prayer wasn't just a passive acceptance. He wasn't simply resolved to the fact that, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. I mean, it's clear that in his humanity that night, Jesus didn't want to suffer. And so in prayer, in a very real sense, he struggled with God. And, and honestly, that really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Jesus stood in a long line of Jewish prophets and sages who modeled that same sort of behavior. The name Israel literally means he struggles with God. And, and the authors of the Old Testament recorded many, many brutally honest prayers that were uttered by some of the people of Israel as they struggled with a God who didn't always come through for them, at least in the way they had hoped, and who at times left them feeling abandoned and alone. Let me show you just, just one example. Um, around a thousand years before the time of Jesus, Israel's most celebrated king, a man by the name of David, wrote the following words. You can almost hear the cry, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long? Like as you can see, David's words here are real and raw and charged with emotion. He essentially throws his hands in the air and cries out, God, where are you? I need you to rescue me and you are not coming. How long? long 
do I have to wait? And, and this is far from the only place in the Bible where this sort of language is used. Moreover, I, I think it's fascinating that not only did the people of ancient Israel feel this way, but they also felt compelled to record their feelings for the benefit of future generations. It's like they wanted to let everybody who came after them know that, listen, struggling with God, trying to understand what he's doing when he doesn't do what we need him to do, it's a normal and even expected part of the human experience. Apparently, uh, as well, if you, I mean, if you read some of these things, they were convinced that God could handle their questions and their criticism and their struggle and their honesty. And Jesus models that same sort of prayer to his followers, one in which we can be brutally honest with our Heavenly Father. And I think Jesus modeled this for a really important reason. He understood something profound about prayer. He realized and recognized that if prayer isn't honest, well, then it can't be effective. If prayer is really going to help us navigate the seasons that we are going to navigate in life, it has to be honest in order for it to be effective. Okay, so now as many of you know, um, the request that uh, God rescue him from what was coming was not where Jesus' prayer in the garden ended that night. There's a second half that we really need to consider to see what's going on. So here's what Jesus says right after asking God to rescue him. He says, um, he says, yet, as in, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then a few verses later, Jesus repeats that prayer, a different version. He says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Like, in my life, I, I really want what you want. And so it's, it's amazing when you think about it. I mean, the first line of the prayer, Jesus asks for a way out of his impending affliction. And then in the second part of the prayer, he acknowledged that he's willing to trust God even if God chooses not to rescue him. He, he was willing to accept the reality that there was a bigger story going on that night in the garden. Said, said differently, Jesus believed and taught that every single human life is a unique story with unique tensions and struggles and triumphs and defeats and frustrations. And each of these stories is set within a bigger story, the story of God. And moreover that night, Jesus affirmed the reality that at times, and this is, this is fascinating, pain in our story can actually serve to advance God's story in the world. And, and to be fair, we don't always know how, and we don't always know why, and at times God really can seem distant and apathetic and, and even cruel. But see, Jesus taught and believed that, that even in the darkest and most confusing moments of our lives, God is still at work. Even when we can't see it, He is still moving. I mean, if you think about it, in the case of Jesus, he had something we don't often get. He knew that his death and resurrection were essential to advance God's story of redemption. And so he resolved himself to the will of God, even knowing what it would cost him. All right, so, so now that said, I want to I ask you a question that, as I was studying this week, popped into my head. And it's interesting to think about. I mean, did Jesus' prayer in the garden work. And if you're thinking what I thought when you, you first are experiencing this question, like you're probably thinking, well, I want to say yes, because Jesus was the one who's praying and everything Jesus did worked. And that's, that's a fair point, right? But I think there's a sense that we could argue that Jesus, this night in the garden, 
didn't get what he wanted. I mean, he was still betrayed and accused and tried and convicted and executed. So, so it, might, it might even be fair to say that Jesus didn't get what he wanted in the garden that night. And so it would be tempting to say, well, his prayer didn't work. But I would argue that his prayer still served a powerful purpose. Because in that moment, his prayer aligned his heart with the heart of his heavenly father. And in that moment, in that situation, that alignment is exactly what he needed the most. In fact, I'm convinced that in our moments, like in our in-the-end situations where questions fill our mind and fear fills our hearts, that alignment with the heart of our Heavenly Father is exactly what we need to, to remind ourselves that God can rescue us, but even if he chooses not to rescue us, he is still at work. Well, fortunately, that, that's not the only prayer um, that Jesus prayed that was recorded for us in the accounts of his life. And I want to just touch on one more because I think it lends so well to this conversation. It happened midway through his time with his disciples. And uh, they noticed that when Jesus prayed, he wasn't praying like they had taught, been taught to pray. Uh, the first century Jewish people were prayed or taught to pray sort of the same prayer over and over again. Jesus wasn't doing that. And so, so one day... Um, they asked him, you know, would you teach us to pray, to pray like you pray? And in response, Jesus gave them a prayer that many, many of us have memorized. If you grew up in church, you may have said it every single week. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And if you remember, this is how it begins. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure Jesus ever intended us to recite this prayer verbatim, not that that's a bad thing to do. I've done it myself countless times, right? But I think Jesus wanted us to use this prayer as sort of a framework for our conversations with God, a framework that would serve to remind us every time we prayed who we are, who God is, and who is ultimately in control. I mean, notice that after identifying God as our Father in heaven, Jesus' prayer models surrender. He, he teaches his followers to pray to God that, God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus wants his followers to pray that the way of heaven would invade their lives here and now and that God would use them to that end. That they would pray, God, I surrender my will to your will for my life, even when it costs me or causes me unspeakable pain, even when I don't understand, even when it feels like I can't take another step forward. I'm willing to lay down my right to demand that you do what I desire you to do, even when I don't see why. I will still choose to trust you. And I think Jesus gives us this prayer because he knows that if we can begin to pray in this way and understand what we're praying, I mean, it has the power to change everything with regards to how we experience struggles in this life. It's like we would stop praying things like, God, fix this, although that's a fair prayer to pray. But along with that, we would say, okay, God, fix this. But if you don't, then God, use this. 
Use this to advance your story. I'm willing to submit to your will even when it's profoundly uncomfortable for me. And God, if rescuing me from my situation is in line with your will and your plan, then I willingly accept it as a blessing and I will give you the praise. But if it's not, I'm not going to turn from you. I'm not even going to be angry with you. I will just choose to trust you anyway. All that to say, like, when you look at Jesus' prayer in the garden, when you look at Jesus, the, the, the prayer he gives his disciples, I think it's fair to say that to Jesus, prayer wasn't just a formality or something to cross off your list so you could get on with the rest of your day. I think you could even say that to Jesus, prayer was like a whole posture towards life. And you see this in the writings of, of, of Paul. He says, you know, pray without ceasing. And we go, oh my goodness, that sounds like that prayer meeting in the basement with the asbestos. What do you mean pray without ceasing, right? No, it's like, he's like, this is your whole posture towards life. So it's words, but it's more than just words. It's also a way to see everything that's going on around you. So sometimes prayer is like being still and reflecting and listening. Prayer is like, waking up to the reality that God is at work in our midst. And prayer can enlarge our perspective and so it can give us a bigger heart. It can pull us off our little story and remind ourselves that God is telling a much, much bigger story. And it's a story with an absolutely incredible ending. Prayer reminds us never to stop asking the question, what is God up to right here and now? And how can I be a part of it? You might even say that according to Jesus, prayer changes things and prayer changes us. And so when people nearing the end of their life on earth ask me if prayer works and they ask me why God did something or didn't do something or allowed something or didn't allow something or why he seemed to say yes to that prayer and no to that prayer. I always say the same thing and it's never that helpful. I just say, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know why some situations go one way while others go the other way, but I do know that we have been invited to remain open to the new thing that God is doing in this moment. And we've been invited to pray a prayer of surrender. One in which after being brutally honest with our frustrations and our concerns and our disappointments, we can utter the words to our Heavenly Father who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And I'm telling you, friends, that changes everything. All right. Um, now, with that, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And before I do, just a couple of reminders. If you're here this morning and uh, we can pray over you, You've come into this place and there's something right front of mind. You say, man, I just wish, I wish someone could pray with me. We'd love to meet you under the screen to your left. Uh, and also, if you're here this morning and something about the World Vision video, man, making a difference uh, in the lives of kids with, by moving your feet, and we'd love to meet you for about 10 minutes under the right screen after I dismiss this. But uh, let's close our time in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that uh, you love us. And we can know that because of Jesus. I pray for friends that are scared this morning. Something has entered their story that was unexpected and it's disorienting and it's confusing and it's frustrating and I pray that your peace would reign on their chaos. That you would calm their hearts and their minds and help them to know that whether rescue is a part of their story or not, you hold them You hold them in this life and you hold them in the life to come. And even though the path ahead of them may not be easy, it's going to be okay. For the rest of us, I pray. um, I pray that you would meet us powerfully as we converse with you this week. You'd open our ears so that we could hear reminders and promptings from you words of comfort, words of challenge, words of hope. Finally, uh, once again this morning, we thank you for Jesus who came as light in darkness to show us the way and to be the way. We will forever be grateful. And it is in his name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Everyone said, Amen. amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.